It's Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com, and I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, crime in America is rising, or is it low? Depending on where you get your news and information, uh, either one could be true. Mark Twain and others have been attributed as saying the famous adage on statistics, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, that's true, as we know. People can manipulate statistics uh, in their favor or uh, in against the opposition. One of the sources of information that I check out with regularly is crimeinamerica.net. And the host, Leonard Sipes, offers a website that disseminates crime rates, statistics, synthesis, reports, and other information. His site lists most dangerous cities, crime sources, reoffender recidivism, and reentry. He also cites the FBI.gov and crimesolutions.gov. Leonard Sipes has a lifelong, he's been a lifelong professional committed to the criminal justice system, starting as a police officer and working his way through top positions within the justice system. He retired in June of 2016 as the senior public affairs specialist and social media manager for a federal criminal justice agency. Len Sipes managed the most popular audio and video podcasting and social media site in the U.S. for select crime and justice issues. He created the first state and federal podcasting series and social media sites. He was the primary spokesperson for the crime prevention for the federal government for 10 years as the senior specialist for crime prevention for the National Criminal Justice Reference Service and the director of information services for the National Crime Prevention Council, both funded by the U.S. Department of Justice. He co-manages the most successful public service ad campaign in the nation, uh, McGruff, the crime dog. He he did that, take a bite out of crime, one of my favorites. And he was the longest lasting director of public information for the state of Maryland, Maryland Department of Public Safety. He was a former associate professor for criminology and public affairs at the University of Maryland University College. Welcome to Policing Matters, Leonard Sipes. Hey, Jim. How are you? Great. Well, it's been great talking to you. It's been great following your reports. They're, uh, they're executive summaries. They, they take away the tedium of sorting through all that data, and you, you usually come up with some gold nuggets in all this uh, aggregate and these things don't usually pop off the sheets when you look at the data, but somehow you find them. What's the goal of your reports? And, and what are you looking at? The goal, Jim, is to make it simple, uh, to make it as simple as possible. And with national crime statistics, it's become more difficult than ever before. Uh, and that's something we can get into in terms of our discussion. But the whole idea is to take research and to make it layman-esque friendly. The whole idea is to take research, to take data, and to rearrange it in such a way that it's it, uh, broken down into its simplest components. Um, but I, at the same time, try to be fastidious in terms of making sure that I'm representing the data correctly. Uh, I just try to break it into summaries. I just try, you know, people have been asking me uh, for the last 35 years in my public speaking roles for national and state criminal justice agencies, explain the FBI's latest data, explain the national, uh, the national Crime Victimization Survey from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. All of this confuses me. Um, and so what I try to do is create reports that synthesizes complex criminological information, complex 
uh, statistical information and to make it as easy as possible for people to understand. Well, you do that. You do that in your reports. But, you know, we're bombarded with contrasting views of crime reports today with each side presenting their own interpretation of statistics. Your recent report on homicides on the rise, yet a report uh, shows low violent crime across the nation. They seem to be conflicting. How do you how do you uh, explain that sort of phenomenon? It's very difficult because in today's world, every, everything becomes advocacy. Um, so if the source is Fox News, people dismiss it, even though their data may be correct. If the source is uh, the New York Times, people will tend to dismiss it because <laughs> even though their data is correct. So somehow, some way, we've got to filter through all of the political advocacy, both on the right and the left, and to distill information down to its simplest form uh, without advocacy. If I have opinions, I'll label um, my, um, in my articles, I'll label them as opinions. Uh, but what I try to do mostly is to provide factual information and let people make up their own minds in, ter in terms of whether crime is up or crime is down. This year is especially difficult because it, it everything comes out in October from three sources, from the FBI, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, uh, and from Gallup. And now it, it's all complete, it's all there, and it's basically um, a very confusing for the average person because it's there's a huge decrease in violence uh, per the National Crime Victimization Survey from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. But the FBI, homicides have increased 30%. Um, violent crime is up 5.6%. Per Gallup, uh, you have victimization of urban households up 30%. Uh, 30% uh, um, uh, in 2021 versus 22% uh, in 2020. So from Gallup and from the FBI, you're showing big increases in violence. Uh, from Gallup, you're getting uh, information as to record increases in terms of fear of crime, of perceptions of crime, or people um, afraid to walk in their own neighborhoods. And But that's contrasted, these big increases are contrasted to what I'm saying, not the Bureau of Justice Statistics, but what I'm saying is, is that it's the largest decrease in violence um, and, and people are having a hard time understanding that. So basically what I'm doing, and, and I included this in terms of articles in the summation, is that, you know, the um, uh, National Crime Victimization Survey is just that, a survey. It's a panel survey. Uh, they're using methodologies close or similar to the United States Census. They use a panel interview, which it's to keep people in this panel interview for three years. They interview them every six months. I simply believe that COVID interfered um, with that process. And, and one of the things that I pointed out um, in, in some of the articles is like, say, as an example, the rate of violence for the 12 to 17 year old age group. And as you know, that's a fairly high criminological or criminogenic age group. Um, the rate of violence went down by 51 percent. Now, I've never seen national crime victimization survey data where anything went up or down by 51%. So that's telling me that, that they had problems in terms of their data collection. Firearm victimizations declined from 482,000 to 350,000 when you know, everybody's labeling the violent crime problem as an increase in quote unquote gun violence and domestic violence 
they're saying is down where everybody else is saying that it's up. So there were, um, uh, it was an abnormal report, uh, but yet at the same time, people need to understand that nobody has come along and said what I'm saying. Um, and, and so there it's the official statistics from the Bureau of Justice Statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice that we had concurrent record increases in homicides from the FBI and record decreases in overall uh, violent victimiza uh, victimization from the um, a National Crime Victimization Survey. So we, we have to live with those two conflicting statistics. And the best I can offer in terms of an explanation is that COVID, and I looked at other data from other sources, research sources saying, yes, uh, their data was impacted by COVID. It's very hard to get um, to do interviews, whether they be in person or over the phone during the age of COVID. COVID has changed everything. So I'm relying upon that analysis and simply said COVID has interfered with the National Crime Victimization Survey for this year. I hope I'm making it some sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you make you make really good points there when you you talk about the hard data statistics and then you talk about polls where we talk about actual crime reported and then we talk about perception of crime or uh, how people feel about crime in their neighborhoods. Exactly. Um, but, but let me let me jump in right now. I mean, so we have 40 percent, according to the National Crime Victimization Survey, 40 percent of all violent crimes were reported to law enforcement. So people would say, why do we need a national survey to count crime? And the reason for that is that if you have 40% of violent crimes reported, 33% of property crimes reported to law enforcement, there's this huge gap in terms of what the FBI reports and what is. Uh, so the only way that you can get that data is to do a national survey. There's no other way around it. Um, so when people say, why do we have a national survey? My answer is that uh, because we have a vast problem in this country in terms of underreporting violent crime. Um, and people say, well, give me an example as to what it is that you're talking about. And I say, OK, two friends at a bar. Uh, they're drinking. They're drinking very heavily. One insults the other person's wife. The other throws a beer bottle at the other person. Is that going to be reported to law enforcement? No. But the National Crime Victimization Survey uses action-oriented words, such as, has anybody uh, attacked you or, or struck you with an object, which is aggravated assault, which is a felony? So there, to the National Crime Victimization Survey, the person is going to say yes, even though he did not report the crime to law enforcement. So there's this huge amount of crime that never gets reported to law enforcement, and that's what the National Survey is supposed to do. Absolutely. And I want to ask you about that in a second, but you also talk about situational awareness. And COVID, of course, is the biggest situation that we've had in the last yes. two years. And so certainly the numbers have been affected by COVID. Um, you know, we've been sheltered in place. We've been hunkered down. Right. Um, we're not going to businesses. We're not going to schools. Uh, we're pretty much sticking close to home. So clearly that's affected um, the data. When uh, I ask students to do research on crime data and do comparisons of years, it just occurred to me the other day in class looking at uh, 2014, there was a huge dip in crime and, and we're trying to reconcile that. And I know in California, we really changed uh, how we defined crimes in California when we 
uh, increased the the felony theft uh, amount from four hundred dollars to nine hundred and fifty. Yes. And we we decriminalized drugs. We made all yes. felony drugs now misdemeanor drugs. And so you know, I mean, <clears throat> I've read some of your your pieces where you talk about proactive policing, and if you know the arrest you make is not going to be charged by a DA and nothing's going to become of it except for your wasted time, there's a tendency to avoid making those kinds of arrests. So isn't it a domino effect of how crime either gets reported or an arrest is made or a charge is made by a prosecutor? Well, look, there, there is a million police employees in the country. There are 700,000 law enforcement officers in the United States. They see the writing on the wall. Uh, everything that's transpired over the course of the last year, year and a half, especially in terms of the riots, the disturbances um, uh, after uh, COVID was, um, um, uh, after the COVID restrictions were lifted the first round in any event, there's now four rounds of uh, COVID um, increases in any event. Um, so when that occurred, um, all hell broke loose. Crime just went through the roof. Um, cops, if you tell them you're not going to, you know, we're not going to prosecute for, for drug offenses, we're not going to prosecute for this offense, we're raising the felony limit from $400 to $900. Uh, they're basically saying, hey, there, there's no sense in moving forward with these sort of arrests. And this will get into opinion. Um, people need to understand that there is no data whatsoever um, that indicates that any of the alternatives to law enforcement, there's no data whatsoever to indicate that it's going to have any impact on crime at all. So let's just say violence interrupters. Um, there's no data saying that, um, that, that um, uh, they've reduced crime. Uh, yes, there's data from the people themselves running it, um, and they're recording big decreases in crime, but they're very small numbers. And the objective researchers, uh, let me get back to the small numbers. If you have 22 violent crimes occurring in a community where they're operating, and now that went down to 17, that's a huge percentage decrease, but it really hasn't affected the safety of the community uh, at all. Um, so there is nothing definitive basically saying that violence interrupters or, or people uh, who are responding, uh, social workers responding to um, uh, mental health cases or um, pumping millions of dollars into, in terms, uh, into communities in terms of uh, uh, trying to deal with their overall um, social inequalities. There's nothing whatsoever uh, from a definitive point of view saying, suggesting that any of these uh, are going to reduce crime. The only modality that we have um, is from a huge report of a couple years ago, funded by the National uh, Institute of Justice in terms of proactive policing, where researchers uh, looked at all forms of proactive policing and basically said that the proactive policing does reduce crime. So if you take proactive policing off the table, uh, and if police officers um, simply say that, no, I, I'm no longer going to be proactive, I'm no longer going to take risks, um, I, I'm no longer going to, to be aggressive, um, that's going to impact violent crime. 
Um, it's unquestionable in terms of what's happened. Either you take a look at what's happened for the last year, year and a half, or if you take a look at the data, if you combine it to, to me, the only modality we have at the moment is proactive policing. If you take proactive policing off the table, then violence is going to, to decrease. Let me switch and say, when I say violent crime, nobody knows what that means anymore. Um, you know, if you, and this is why I, I oftentimes use spousal abuse or domestic violence because people seem to care about that or crimes against children. Violent crime destroys cities. Violent crime destroys neighborhoods. Violent crime eliminates, totally eliminates um, people willing to come in and provide economic development. People willing to put jobs in communities, no, they're not going to do it because of the level of violence. Uh, it is something that affects education. It's something that affects economic development. It's something that profoundly impacts uh, the individuals who live in those communities. So the fear of crime, the latest data from Gallup is that it's the highest level in, in urban areas. Uh, in quite some time. So, and, and it's backed up by other data in terms of fear of crime. So when I say violent crime to me, it is cancer. It is COVID. It is child abuse. It is spousal abuse. Are there are the things that people would go, oh my God, that's horrible. Well, we're, we've become so accustomed to violent crime that it's completely lost its impact. My sense of things is that if you care about humanity, if you care about the quality of life, for people, uh, and this is impacting minority communities the hardest. It's impacting low-income communities the hardest. Uh, it's, it's, it's affecting cities the hardest. So if you have any sympathy at all, if you have any sense of care for your fellow human beings, we have to reduce violent crime, uh, or else it's literally, literally, literally going to destroy communities and cities. Um, so that's 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 my speech. The flip side of all of that is that I'm not against violence interrupters. I'm all for them. I'm not against um, uh, social workers going in and handling mental health calls. I'm not against people uh, investing and putting millions of dollars into um, high crime, low income communities. Everything should be on the table for the for discussion. Um, all I'm saying is, is that have independent outside researchers, not the people who are advocating for these programs, independent outside researchers coming in and let them evaluate the data and let them tell us whether or not these indeed have an impact or don't have an impact. Uh, when I first started, when I left law enforcement and went to college, I was a violence interrupter decades ago, working in the streets in Baltimore City, working outside with in high crime areas with younger people on the street. And I'm here to tell you, it is not a simple prospect. Uh, it is not a simple thing to convince people to give up their criminogenic ways and, and to, to go in other directions. Um, so, uh, I, you know, but these things should be on the table and should be open for the, for discussion and evaluation. Yeah, totally. And I, I hear exactly what you're saying and I've lived it in my first nine years of patrol in San Francisco in the Western edition, I've seen, uh, grocery stores trying to get a foothold in a neighborhood, but because of the crime, just as you said, um, the turnover was tremendous. Uh, I probably saw six or eight different chains try to go 
to one area and just because of, of thefts and vandalism and and violence just they left and it's we're seeing it again we're seeing it again with, yeah we're, we're seeing it again with um you know chain uh, uh pharmacies and uh drugstores leaving uh metropolitan cities because of um you know these these thefts and and violence and uh they just can't stay open and they can't make it profitable. And going back to crime stats, we've seen the anecdotal evidence of the videos on YouTube of these mass, uh, they're burglaries, we're, we're calling them robberies, but there's clearing shelves of garbage bags full yes. of high-end stuff and walking out unrestrained. And, and yet we have a, a district attorney or even the mayor saying, oh, don't believe what you're seeing, that's not happening. <laughs> And, well, and you have you, I guess there's an expectation that these stores are supposed to report every one of these thefts. And I imagine they write them off at the end of the year that there's a loss, but it's unreasonable that they're reporting every single theft. And so maybe you have that anecdotal evidence, but you don't have that um, mainstay of reporting of the everyday reporting of loss that the the opponents or advocates depending on on your viewpoint uh take a position that it's not really true they ignore what you're seeing <laughs> well look i keep coming back to the same theme if you care about humanity if you really care about the quality of life for your fellow human beings you will get violent crime and crime across the board under control. Can you imagine all the stores? I mean, these communities are going to become food deserts um, because grocery stores are pulling out, um, drug stores are pulling out, businesses are pulling out. They're not going to invest in these communities. And now these now individual people have to get on a bus and they have to travel 45 minutes on a bus to get to a store just to buy food just because of crime. So if you have any sense of humanity, um, any sense of, of empathy um, for your fellow human beings, we've got to get the violence problem in this country under control. Um, we've got to come to a consensus. And, and, and people, you know, the criminal justice system is going to follow the lead of, of the larger popular opinion. This is why proactive Policing is, is dead in certain communities, and this is why violence is going up. We've got to come to grips with what is acceptable to communities in terms of proactive policing. Are we going to go back to aggressive stop and frisk in New York like we saw um, in past decades? No. Um, because the overwhelming majority of the uh, individuals who were stopped and frisked, uh, they were simply let go. Um, nothing happened. They didn't find guns and they didn't find uh, major drugs. Uh, that's what they were basically looking for. So stop and frisk on an extraordinarily aggressive basis is pretty much over. But at the same time, there has to be some level of proactivity. I'm a cop. I'm riding through the neighborhood um, and I see somebody on the corner and maybe a bump in the belt, the belt may be a, a firearm, the belt may be a, uh, the bump may be a, a smartphone. Uh, but I know this person who has had a, a violent history. I know he's hanging out with other people uh, who have violent histories. I know that there's violence in the community. 
um, you know, because of my knowledge of that individual, and as long as I have a legal right to stop that person, and if need be, frisk that person for my own safety, that needs to happen. And if that doesn't happen, if you completely do away with it, then violence is going to continue to go up. It's, it's just that simple. You can either believe the research from uh, the National Institute of Justice or the U.S. Department of Justice, or you can believe what's been happening over the course of the last year, year and a half. <clears throat> okay, so I want to get into, uh, you mentioned it before, and it's the dark figure of crime. It's the unreported crime and how that affects crime stats and how that can be manipulated. But first, I'd like to take a brief moment to thank our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we're back and we're speaking to Leonard Sipes, author and reporter of Crime in America, where he breaks down data and makes it into a, an executive summary of sorts. He, he gives us the highlights and tells us what these, these crime stats mean. So the dark figure of crime, we, we touched on it a little bit about uh, crime that's not reported um, statistically through a police report, through the FBI uniform crime reports. Um, we've seen in past years uh, where we can look at uh, gaps in data and we can tie them to something in time. Well, in five years, people are certainly gonna come back to 2020 as the COVID years. Is this a trend that's going to continue to affect crime stats or, or are we going to bounce back? Are we gonna go back to more accurate uh, data keeping? Uh, well, it's interesting that the overall percentage of crimes reported to law enforcement has been going down for years. Um, so people are not reporting crimes to law enforcement and people need to understand that the majority of violent crime involves somebody who they know. So they have prior contact with that individual. But at the same time, what I'm talking about is women who are being violently victimized by their husbands or by their significant others or by their boyfriends or by a past boyfriend. That's what we're talking about when we say violent crime, unreported violent crime. But even robberies um, and, and other forms of, of when you get into assaults and aggravated assaults, the bulk of these, not robberies, but the bulk of the other categories, especially rape, uh, involves people who we've had prior contact with. And most of these crimes are happening in homes. Uh, the home turns out to be one of the most dangerous areas of all. And so this is why when we talk about sexual assault, we talk about people need to understand whose home they're willing to go into and who they're willing to let in 
in terms of their own homes. The same thing applies to a good, a good degree from um, uh, regarding child abuse. So when you get into this, this issue of what I said before opening the conversation about uh, two friends in a bar get drunk, one insults the other uh, wife, the other person throws a beer bottle at them, Tech, uh, technically that's aggravated assault. Um, no, he's not going to report that to law enforcement, but he will say he was a victim of aggravated assault, which is a felony through a victimization survey when you don't have to identify the offender. Um, so there, there is this dark area of, of crime, 33% of property victimization and, and 40% of violent victimization is reported to law enforcement. So the great bulk of what we call crime is never going to show up in the FBI statistics and the local law enforcement statistics. So the only way that we have a handle on what's actually happening throughout the country nationally in terms of crime uh, is through the National Crime Victimization Survey and the National Crime Victimization Survey. They are trying to take data and use it for metropolitan areas. So they're trying to look at instead of just reporting national data, they've already put out example data um, for metropolitan areas. So they're trying to take that and extrapolate it to local areas as well, but that hasn't happened yet on a fairly steady basis. Okay, so I guess if we're, you know, 70% of some crimes are unreported, 60% of others are unreported. I mean, we've got these huge gaps. Um, Crime mapping, uh, I take it that uh, you, you must uh, take a look at crime mapping. And, you know, we go back to Jack Maple in uh, NYPD and, and Bill Bratton, and they talked about cops on the dots. Uh, does it make sense to use crime maps anymore or are they, are they irrelevant? There is so much opposition uh, to a data approach to law enforcement um, uh, every time. Look, you have to understand, everybody needs to understand, the vast majority of what is offered um, from about crime and justice or statistics, crime statistics on a day-to-day -day basis comes from adv advocacy groups. Um, I, I'd say 85% of what I read, and I read from various sources throughout the course of every single day to get a sense as to what's going on out there. Uh, the vast majority of it is, is left-leaning. And, and uh, the, you know, the, the, the opposition to using a data approach to crime uh, is almost overwhelming. It's almost to the point where I don't blame law enforcement agencies to simply say, all oh, the hell with it. Every time we come up with a data-driven approach um, um, you know, we get immense amount of criticism for, for doing it. Um, look, we know from research, and you know, and your students know, that we're not talking about cities, we're not talking about communities, we're talking about very specific blocks, hot spots within cities, within communities, and we're talking about an offender-oriented approach uh, because we know that the, the majority of crime is committed by a quote-unquote minority of offenders. Um, so we know that crime, the bulk of crime occurs in these hot spots. So it makes all the sense in the world to shift your resources over to these hot spots. It makes all the sense in the world to shift your resources over to the people who are victimizing, violently victimizing other human beings 
But every time law enforcement announces they're going to do this, there's just an immense amount of pushback uh, saying that you can't trust the data, the data is discriminatory. Um, uh, you know, it, it's just to the point where it, it's like proactive policing. There's a certain point where law enforcement is just gonna throw their hands up in the air and walk away. Um, it's, you know, if, if we're not going to use data to pinpoint how we should be using our resources and how we should be using our personnel, I mean, what's the sense? Um, I mean, we're, we're giving up on the safety of citizens. Um, <laughs> we're giving up on people becoming violent victims. We're giving up on people living in food deserts and hurting economies and education across the board. We're giving up. Uh, on all of that, unless we use our resources to the, the in, in the best possible way, noting full well, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's a big decrease in law enforcement officers. Cops are quitting. Uh, families, I know personally of families that are going back to their law enforcement loved ones, male and female, and said, get out. This is absurd. Um, you know, the cops are just being criticized, not just individual cops for doing illegal or stupid things, uh, and they deserve all the criticism in the world, uh, but all cops. Now the issue has become not the individuals doing these incredibly stupid or unlawful things. Now it's a criticism of all 1 million police employees. If you're capable of that level of stereotyping, you're capable of any ism, whether it be sexism, racism, or anything else. If you're capable of, of making that extrapolation that the problem is all cops, um, we have a real problem. Um, so as long as that point of view that something is terribly wrong with law enforcement, uh, and we do have our problems, and we should acknowledge our problems and we should own our problems and we should own up to our problems and we should be willing to accept the criticism um, when necessary. I'm, you know, we serve the public. We have dedicated ourselves to equal enforcement of the law. When, we we're, when we're sworn in, that's what we say, that we're going to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state that you represent. And we are dedicated to complete um, um, equal enforcement under the law. That's who we're supposed to be. Anytime we deviate from that, um, I understand the criticism, but we cannot it's not a criticism. It's not fair to criticize a million human beings. It's not fair to criticize law enforcement across the board. If we don't use a data-oriented approach, let's just go home <laughs> and, and give up. Um, if, if that's what people, if, if there's going to be an enormous amount of pushback when we know full well that most crime happens in select spots, blocks, addresses, I mean, it gets down to that small, that most crime is occurring with individuals who are committing crimes at a very high level. If we can't go after them, if we can't go after these hot spots, why are we here? Absolutely. Well said. Well, I, I, I totally appreciate your time. I want to wrap up. And um, I noticed you don't really concentrate on drug crime per se, but um, I think we have to address it. Uh, CDC just came out with their latest report. Um, when I first started teaching, I think we were in the 50,000s. Um, second year teaching, it was 68,000 overdose deaths across mm -hmm. America. Uh, earlier this year, it was 88,000. And we just topped over a 12-month period of over 100,000 
dead people from drug overdoses. Well, we're at this sort of juncture in dealing with drugs in America. We went from the 1970s, Richard Nixon's declaration of the war on drugs, to this uh, argument where people, you know, successfully argued that there were Uh, such a high percentage of people in uh, jails and prisons for just drugs only. And when I talk about state prisons, I tell my students that's a fallacy. The the prisons are not overcrowded with drug offenses only. Um, You might see higher numbers in federal prisons, but we're talking mass quantities and import, export, boat load, plane load, submarine load. Um, But now what what's the next step i mean i know it's not your your uh your uh, level of comfort in predicting or uh policy recommendations but what should we be doing with 100,000 overdose deaths uh we we've got this harm reduction policy where we're we're setting up clinics where you can have your drugs tested you can safely shoot under medical supervision have a nice beanbag to fall back on. Uh, we're giving you everything you need except for the drug so far. Uh, <laughs> is that the way that we should be going? Or it, it's, it, it's, it's so complex that it's very difficult to address. First of all, as I said um, earlier in, in the show, that everything should be on the table. As far as I'm concerned, there are not, there's nothing that people propose that shouldn't be on the table as long as it's evaluated by independent outside researchers. So I have said in articles, and I have taken my fair share of criticism for it, that marijuana should be um, legalized or decriminalized. Um, I have a constant theme in terms of my approach to, to all of these modalities is that cops can't be all things to all people. Uh, there's a certain point where you have to take the burden off of individual law enforcement officers so they can focus on violent crime and so they can focus on making cities safe. Um, so, so there I'm, I'm saying that I believe that uh, marijuana should be decriminalized um, or, or uh, legalized, one of the two. Uh, knowing full well um, that that's going to increase the amount of, say, automobile accidents. It's impossible for it not to. Um, there are a lot of people out there, and, and people have the hardest time understanding this. I've sat down with addicts uh, throughout my career, and we don't have time to go into all of the examples. But addiction is just so heinous. It's just so um, terrible. Um, and in terms of getting people to stop what they're doing uh, while they're under the influence of drugs. Uh, a, a good majority of people who, and this is the U.S. Department of Justice, who were involved in violent crime were under the influence of, of drugs or alcohol uh, when they were doing it. So anytime you loosen the restrictions on society in terms of drug use or alcohol use, it's almost inevitable once you've made that acceptable that a certain amount of violent crime is, is, is going to go up. There are a whole mess of people out there who should not take anything stronger than aspirin. Um, and yeah, people are gonna say, hey, marijuana, it, it's, you know, it mellows you out. Some people, it doesn't. Some people, it affects, it affects them and they, they do engage in, in, in violent crimes. According to data from the US Department of Justice, the drug most prevalent in drug streams of people arrested was marijuana. 
uh, and arrested for all sorts of different crimes. Now, that could be because marijuana stays in the body up to 28 days where cocaine is, is rapidly released. I understand that. Um, but the larger discussion is that if we want to go to alternatives and make drug use a public health issue and not a law enforcement issue, I'm all for that. People simply need to understand the consequences. People need to understand what their decisions mean in terms of drug use and how that's going to affect the overall society. And unless until or uh, people should walk into this public health approach with their eyes wide open uh, because everything has repercussions. We did away with proactive policing in cities throughout the country and we have this huge spike in violence to the point where it's literally destroying communities. Um, everything we do has a equal and opposite reaction. Um, so we've gotta be careful in terms of how we approach substance abuse. Everything should be on the table. Everything should be evaluated. But quite frankly, I'm afraid, even though I'm a hypocrite because I say legalize or decriminalize marijuana, um, you know, everything should be on the table for examination. I'm all for a public health approach to drugs. I'm all for providing substance abuse treatment uh, to people caught up in the criminal justice system or substance abuse on demand. But that's going to require an enormous investment, billions and billions of dollars to set something like that up nationwide. The biggest problem we have in terms of a public health approach or rehabilitation programs or treatment programs is that we don't fund them. We don't fund them. I've said for decades, show me the money. Show me the money. Show me the money. If you're not showing me the money, you're not, you, you don't care. Um, so if you're going to say, hey, Leonard, we're going to give your agency another $2 million uh, to do substance abuse programming for people caught up in the criminal justice system. <clears throat> I want to say thank you very much. Um, that's a wonderful thing that you're doing, but it's bull crap. I need 20 million. I don't need 2 million. So unless you're willing to give me the 20 million I need, you know, you're, you're just peeing into the wind. Um, so I'm just asking people to, to be very cautious with this public health approach to substance abuse so we don't send the wrong messages uh, and we don't make doing substances that are strongly, strongly, strongly connected to violent crime, spousal abuse, domestic violence, um, child abuse. Uh, which is a huge problem with the offenders that are caught up in the criminal justice system. If we're not careful about this, we could have unanticipated consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And again, with COVID, uh, had guests on the show, experts in child abuse and domestic violence, who've said their biggest fear is that you know the the lack of contact with mandatory reporters. With, with people outside the home that uh, we're probably seeing, uh, there are probably more incidents of these uh, abuses happening that we're just not hearing about and may never hear about. That's true. If you take a look at the data in terms of people caught up in the criminal justice system, you routinely find child abuse, you routinely find neglect. I've done hundreds of podcasts for the federal government, for state governments, um, television shows where I've interviewed hundreds of offenders. And before I hit the record button, 
um, every time I say, well, tell me a little bit about growing up and, and, and your backgrounds. Um, uh, so it's not the intimidation of, of being recorded. Uh, and they all tell horrific stories of abuse and neglect. Uh, it's sad. I, I had four women um, sitting in front of me one day and, and uh, they were talking about um, sexual abuse. Uh, they were four women caught up in the criminal justice system. One uh, was convicted of homicide. Um, then they started talking about how they had been raped and sexually abused by people they know from a fairly early age. And it was so intense and it was so powerful. When I hit the unrecord button, I said, look, I'm going to hold on to this for a week. I want each and every one of you to think about what it is that you just said, because, you know, it's, it's very damning of, of the people that you know growing up. And, and because of the level of sexual violence that has been directed towards you. Uh, and, and all four came back and said, absolutely not. We've been dying to say this publicly for wow. years. People need to understand what's happening to female offenders caught up in the criminal justice system. For us, this was therapeutic. For us, uh, this was um, cathartic. So, you know, it's the level of violence directed towards children and directed towards women. So much of that is connected to substance abuse. And even though I say let's decriminalize marijuana, let's legalize marijuana because cops can't be all things to all people. There's a certain point where you've got to take away the burden from law enforcement. I know full well that that's going to have an impact on child abuse, violence against children and violence against women, because that's how some people are impacted by marijuana. Once you start getting into the harder drugs, oh my God, especially alcohol, uh, it scares the dickens out of me in terms of women and children in this country. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we can talk about this all day. And uh, marijuana is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we, we talk about the, the opioid impact on America. It's huge. Hey, I want to thank you for being on the program. And, and I'm reading about Can Proactive Policing Save American Cities by um, Leonard Sipes, uh, Police Interactions with the Public in his crimeinamerica.net website. Uh, we're going to post um, your link in our uh, show notes. Where else? How can people uh, get a hold of your publications and read about what you're putting out there? Well, Crime in America Net, um, uh, Crime in America.net, M-E-T, um, is my website. Um, I put in my email address. Sometimes I regret putting in the email address. I, I stopped putting it in the articles, but I do put it in terms of uh, about this website and about the author. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Reddit. Uh, Reddit is just such an interesting place. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, so people can contact me uh, via all those modal modalities, including my email address. Um, and, and, and I have conversations every single day. In fact, uh, sometimes uh, it, 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 there are so many conversations that uh, I'm having a hard time creating articles. Um, uh, so, so I'm willing to have a conversation with just about anybody in the, in the United States as long as, and in the world for that matter, as long as they're willing to be respectful. Um, and as long as they have questions that are not advocacy, but based upon data, uh, because I've always said, if you catch me misusing the data, fine, please tell me, I want to know so I can issue a correction, um, which has happened, um, a couple times out of the thousands of articles that I've created. 
so I do count on individuals coming back to me and saying, Leonard, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. Uh, but make that argument based upon the data. Don't make it upon based on advocacy. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate sure. it. I'm going to continue to read your reports. Uh, I find them really valuable. And I look forward to reading the next one. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jim. Have a great day. You too. All right. And to our listeners, uh, let us know what you think. Are you using data to support your enforcement activities? Uh, let us know what you think. Is there a topic you'd like to hear about? Let me know. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com. Drop an email at policingmatters at police1.com. Stay safe. Watch your six. I'm Jim Dudley. Take good care. Bye.